Let's talk digital. We are at the cutting edge of digital tweaks, changes, transformation. A local digital marketing podcast. Conversing with industry experts and getting excerpts about the exceptional. Hosted by Audrey Naidu. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I'm really looking forward to what's coming up in South Africa in the next couple of months and years. Hey everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk Digital with me, Audrey Naidu. The impending death of a third-party cookie is already raising widespread concerns. Industry leaders have speculated what it means for the future of advertising, while technology companies must adapt to new products and solutions. The advertising ecosystem relies on the consumer, the publisher, and the marketer. Whilst all must adapt to the changing environment, The marketer is a key investor now faced with finding a solution to this challenge. The four major challenges for marketers is going to be reach, personalization, campaign optimization and performance measurement. So how should marketers navigate into the future? My guest today is Sam Tomlinson, partner at PwC, leading the marketing and media assurance teams in the UK. He has been working with brands across the world and in South Africa assessing the impact and providing workable solutions around this issue. Sam, welcome to the podcast and for joining us all the way from the UK. Uh, uh, really excited to, uh, to be here with you. Yeah, from what I understand that you're having some bad weather there. Um, it's the middle of winter. Um, we're all in lockdown. Um, I certainly much prefer to be in South Africa at this time of year, that's for sure. Yeah, we've been having some great weather. I have to admit that. Sam, you have a very impressive bio, having worked across different markets, won many awards and published some key studies. Can you tell our listeners what is it you do at PwC? Um, you're being very kind in your introduction there, um, Audrey. Yes, yeah, so I, um, I, I've been at, uh, at PwC for just over 20 years. Um, I originally trained as, a, as an accountant and auditor focused on the media sector. Um, Ten years ago, I could see the pressures building on publisher and media owner businesses and and the challenges that marketers were going to face navigating, you know, co- complex new channels and platforms. Um, and I set up what is now our marketing and media assurance team. We're 40 marketing and media specialists in, in London and about 300 globally, all within the PwC network of, of about 250,000 people. Um, and the... Um, the project that we are best known for, I would say, is a, is a study that we did last year into the programmatic advertising supply chains. We were, we were the first people ever to, to fully match impressions right the way from advertiser to publisher at scale. Um, and ident- you know, we faced significant issues with data access and data quality. And other, among other things, we identified that on average, only half of the spend reaches the publisher and 15% um, disappears into an unattributable unknown delta. Okay, so yeah, and you work across 10 different markets internationally? Yeah, we're a, a truly international team. Um, PwC broadly divides the world into North America and everywhere else. Um, and, and I'm effectively responsible for our marketing and media assurance um, teams everywhere across the world, except for North America. And I think of late, you've been working with some South African bands. Do you want to expand on that? Um, yes. So we've, we've, done, um, we've done work on um, sort of marketing spend um, with ABSA. Um, and then some of my colleagues have done work around 
um, marketing technology and customer data um, at other banks uh, in South Africa. Okay, thanks for that. So straight to the question, Sam, should we be freaking out about the death of third-party cookies? I guess freaking out is never <laughs> a good solution to any challenge. True. But yes, if, um, if freaking out is a prompt for action, then, then yes, uh, I, I'd say we should be. Um, Google announced at, at this time last year that third-party cookies would be discontinued in the Chrome browser um, from the end of 2021. Yeah, at the time that gave two years to prepare. Unfortunately, the first of those years has effectively been lost to, to dealing with the, the COVID pandemic for, for many marketers and media owners. So there, there is now something of a ticking clock with effectively 11 months to, um, to get prepared for what will be a really significant change um, for both the marketers and media owners. From what I understand, there's still uncertainty in terms of when this change is going to happen because having spoken to some of my Google colleagues two days ago, um, they said somewhere in 2022. Have you heard anything different? Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, so we've been working to the time on the basis, on the assumption that, that the date is end of 2021. Um, you're right that, that Google haven't ever announced a specific date. Um, but our advice to, to anybody would be, um, when you look at their original announcement, it certainly implied the end of 2021. I don't think you'd want to be planning on the assumption that that could be mid 2022. I completely agree. I mean, um, it's it's a safe bet for us to start planning and have a, a project plan or an idea on what we're going to do. Because I think there is an assumption that this change is only going to impact uh, media. And I think it, it goes beyond that. Um, you want to tell our listeners more around that? Yeah, sure. I think it will affect so many aspects of, of, of digital marketing. Um, the, you know, the obvious use case has, has been the use of cookies in, in, in a pro programmatic retargeting. But at their at heart, third-party cookies are a way of tracking individuals um, across sites and, and using that knowledge to deliver tailored marketing messages. If that ability to deliver tailored marketing um, is going to be constrained, then marketers need to be thinking really holistically about how else can I deliver tailored messages to my, to my customers and, and targets. Absolutely. So I think uh, what you say is so important is we need to acknowledge that this will fundamentally change digital advertising in the future. Absolutely agreed. So Sam, to start at the beginning, what are third party cookies and how is it being used currently in advertising? So a third party cookie is essentially a, a piece of code that, that registers a device when it lands on a website um, and recognizes that device when it returns. So that's a cookie. Um, a first party cookie is a publisher using a cookie on their own website. And first party cookies will continue to be permissible um, be beyond the end of this year. So, 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 so analytical, analytics on visitors to your own site will still be able to be done. Um, a third party cookie is essentially somebody who drops a cookie on lots of other sites and then uses that information to track somebody from one site to another to another. Um, the way in which they're used, that the most 
instantly recognizable way is, is, is retargeting. I think we've all had that experience when you, you go onto one website um, and you might look at um, a new pair of shoes or in a pre-COVID world, you, you might look at a holiday abroad. Um, and you then have that experience of shoes or holiday ads chasing you around the internet on the next few completely different websites that you visit. That is able to happen because of third-party cookies. Yes, um, I I do agree with that. So if you had to look at what you just said now, what would be uh, your main challenges for marketers and how they uh, track, how they use cookies to track user behavior or to target consumers going forward? Um, so the third-party cookies, have, have, I tend to think of it in, in uh, the use cases in two, that the first is, how they are used. I've just given the example of, of retargeting. So that's the use of the third party cookie to deliver marketing messages. Um, the second use of third party cookies is in um, what's called attribution or multi-touch attribution. And multi-touch attribution is a, a means of measuring ad effectiveness in, in the online world. So it, it grew out of the history. So initially there was something called last click attribution uh, a simple example of that would be somebody Googles holidays um, in France, paid search links come up, somebody clicks through and then books a holiday in France. Last click attribution would suggest that, that it was that final click that was, that was key. Multi-touch attribution would recognize all the other websites and adverts that somebody had been exposed to before they made that final click. In particular, if somebody Googles a specific brand name, if I Google, um, let's say, Nike, is that because it appeared in the Google search lists or is it because I've been exposed to multiple Nike adverts over the previous month? With the end of third-party cookies, retargeting will be lost, as will the ability to track people's history that underpins multiple multi-touch attribution. Um, yes, and what about reach? Yeah, reach also extremely important. So... Um, the way that cookies are used um, is uh, it effectively enables you to recognize one user across multiple sites um, and deduplicate between them. So if, using third-party cookies, I know that if one person has visited three different websites, I know that's the same person three times, or I might know that it's three different people because the third-party cookie doesn't match. Um, so uh, reach and frequency capping is another kind of core use case of third-party cookies so i mean what's the downside to this uh, for consumers that's a really good question um so the end of third-party cookies has generally been painted as or google have attempted to portray it as in the interests of consumers um it's a you know quote response to privacy regulation um and it is um means that people's data personal data, their browsing history and so on, is being less widely shared. Um, the downside is, of course, that you, you as you said in the, in the reach example, you might suffer more bombardment because um, you won't be frequency capped and therefore you might keep seeing the same ad again and again and again across multiple sites. Um, there's also an argument that you will receive advertising that is less relevant to you because it will be less targeted. So, um, you know, most studies suggest people would prefer to see advertising that's relevant to them than not relevant. 
Well, according to Google, the main reason they're doing it is to be more responsible in terms of data privacy and protecting consumer data. But I think the real question we need to ask ourselves, will this solve the consumer privacy issue in general? I think there's so many aspects to privacy considerations that any one change is, is unlikely to make a significant difference in either direction. Um, it's worth noting that the discontinuation of third-party cookies by Google, it, it feels like a seminal moment, but it's actually just part of a gradual trend. Um, Apple, it, within its um, Safari browser, has long constrained the ability to track users uh, across sites. That There's other browsers that already either disallow third-party cookies or give people the option of disallowing them. So. This is part of a trend rather than a uh, rather than a key moment in its own right. I think where I have, you know, where you can have sympathy with with Google in this situation is that they are under pressure from both directions. Um, if they don't constrain the use of third party cookies, privacy activists will complain. If they do constrain third party cookies, then advocates of an open web um, and smaller publishers um, will also complain that. It's an example of Google exercising monopoly power. So, so, so Google is in a tough situation, whichever route they go. Yeah, I mean, I was reading on Google's privacy sandbox. Do you have any um, inroads in terms of what is the approach and would that solve some of the these challenges being experienced? It's really important to, to note that at the moment, n- nobody is clear on the pri- on how, quite how the privacy sandbox will operate, um, because Google themselves are still testing and learning at, at this stage. Um, the, the principle is that you would have groups of individuals, and that because you are then targeting groups of individuals, you are protecting any one individual's privacy. Um, so, it, there's a so you, you might hear phrases like cohorts, for example. Our advice to to, to brands would be: it is possible that the privacy sandbox will solve some of the challenges at the end of third-party cookies. It's also possible that it won't. We just don't know at this stage. Either way, it highlights a more sort of underlying concern, which is if you're relying on the privacy sandbox, you are ultimately still beholden to somebody else, in this case, Google, to solve your marketing challenges. And that doesn't feel like a good place for anyone to be as a business. Um, And you are obviously always partly reliant on all your suppliers and business partners, but you don't want to be wholly reliant. So our advice to marketers is start investing now in strengthening and enriching your own customer data. Um, and this carries a number of benefits, which I can talk to in a second, but, but one of the key benefits is that you are then far more self-reliant and, and you're not beholden either to decisions by Google or to decisions by privacy regulators. I think you make reference to, um, you know, this the shift we're seeing in the market that brands need to take more ownership in terms of developing a more robust first party or data strategy, even looking beyond first party, but looking at a, a, a very compelling data strategy that is not reliant on um, external parties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
broadly, there's three ways in which an organization can access, you know, customer data for, for marketing purposes. There's, there's third party data, which, as we're talking about today, that, that use of third party data is inevitably going to be constrained by privacy considerations. Whenever we've tested publisher first party audience data, we've always been impressed by its accuracy. Whenever we've tested the accuracy of third party data, we have found it to be lacking. But in any case, third party data will definitely be constrained. The next option is second party data, which is the sort of mutual sharing of data with a, with a second party. This sounds appealing in theory, um, and I used to be quite a strong advocate of the potential here, but the challenge is increasingly becoming um, twofold. First, you still need to test the accuracy of the counterparty's data. That's obviously important. Um, uh, and then you also need to get your customers comfortable with you sharing their data with that counterparty. And you need to be comfortable if your counterparty has done the same. And as people start to sort of think about privacy, you know, as, a, as more of a primary consideration, it's quite hard in a practical sense for marketers in an organization to convince their IT and legal colleagues that they should be able to enter into second party data arrangements. Um, so that then brings you to first party data. Um, and first party data is effectively um, capturing uh, or generating your own customer data. And it has lots of advantages. I've already mentioned it means you, you're not beholden to others. That's really important. Um, it also means that you can be confident in the accuracy because you can periodically test it yourself. You can be confident in the permissioning history because you own it. Um, and then you can be confident in how it's being used because that, that is up to you. So we are uh, big advocates of building out your own customer first party data. So the question is, how do you do that? Because, I mean, I'm seeing that some of the solutions that experts are proposing to brands is looking at CDPs, DMPs, looking at tech to um, to look at AI, machine learning. Um, what What is some of the, the things that you would recommend for people to consider from a tech perspective? Yeah, terrific question. And I'm... And I'm going to note right up front that the answer will be different for every client situation because every company is unique. And the way to start would always be with a, you know, an assessment of your as-is state. So what data do you currently have? How accurate is it? Um, and how well permissioned is it? And what is the governance like over it? Um, that said, there are some themes. So um, the difference between a DMP and, and a CDP is that a a CDP has been deliberately designed to house personally identifiable information. So, um, and that means that a CDP is typically a more robust way of storing customer data. So we think that DMPs will either morph into CDPs by strengthening themselves or they will be replaced by CDPs. Um, in terms of how you gather the data to store in your CDP, um, it's really important to have a, a strong data capture strategy um, and approaches will vary by industry. Um, uh, in banking, clearly there, that there is a, a great start there because banks naturally already collect a, 
a wealth of data on their customers at the individual level. Um, retailers, interestingly, are, are a bit trickier. You would expect retailers to have strong customer data with a combination of um, loyalty card data, you know, website e-commerce data, and so on. But typically, retailers struggle to join those data sets together, um, and that's something that actually we've developed a sort of unique, exp um, a unique approach to, which leverages the acquirer card data that sits behind the banking data, the bank card data, and then you can use machine learning to start to join individuals together, um, but in an anonymized fashion. So retailers are interesting. Trickiest is probably um, businesses like you know consumer packaged goods where they have typically sold via a retailer um, and had you know broadcast brand building advertising. Um, and for those businesses that they need to be thinking now, if they intend to switch to more tailored marketing, how do they generate first party data when they don't sell direct to the customer? Um, and obviously there are techniques techniques to do this. Um, you know, uh, competitions, um, polls, quizzes. Yeah, there's lots of techniques, but you want to be starting on this journey now, not as the end of the year approaches. Yeah, I think from what you said, there's so many different variables that brands need to consider now to build the strategy. Um, and if marketers are thinking that they're just reliant on uh, your media partners to solve the problem, then they need to rethink their plan and their approach going forward. Have you found this to hold true in some of your other brands in global markets? Yes, I think uh, one of the interesting things here is because Google is so truly global, I guess with a couple of countries maybe as exceptions, but Google is basically truly global. So you have a situation with marketers everywhere facing the same challenges, almost whichever market they are in. Um, and where we're seeing sort of the most forward thinking marketers, I would say, have project teams set up dedicated to thinking about the post cookie world. Um, and they've probably got a number of work streams. They'll have a work stream mapping out their current customer and marketing journeys and identifying which of those are dependent on third party cookies so that you start to think about where are the different impacts going to be. Then you need to start thinking about strategies to address each of those. Almost certainly one strategy will be build out my first party data. There might be a strategy around partnerships with others. There's probably a strategy around how you will deal with the walled gardens in the future, you know, Google, Facebook, and increasingly Amazon there as well. Um, you'll obviously need strong input from IT and, and legal. Um, and then you've got to start testing and learning to, to figure out what will work in the new world and what won't. Um, and it is important to remember that, um, you know, media owners should, many of them should be your allies in all of this, particularly pre premium publishers, you know, who are trusted by their audiences, therefore who can gather, uh, you know, um, data on those users and have all the contextual data of the sorts of content that those people consume. Um, you know, premium publishers have an opportunity here to build out strong first party data sets of their own and then allow marketers to activate against them. So I just want to delve into that because I think you make a very important point. And this is around programmatic. 
I mean, would you suggest that brands maybe consider doing more PG and PMP deals then? Yes. So we are strong advocates of, of PMP and, and a private marketplace and programmatic guarantees, so PMP and PG, um, for a few reasons. If I think back to the study that we referenced where we joined up programmatic supply chains, that there is significantly more spend leakage in pure open marketplace and less spend leakage in private marketplaces. So even absent the data, just more of your money will reach the publisher in a private marketplace. Um, when you then layer on some of the additional benefits in terms of reduced risks around fraud, viewability and brand safety, because you can curate the private marketplace to be you know, pre trusted premium publishers. And then you've got the ability to activate against those publisher first party data sets, which have hopefully been you know, independently verified. So you're confident in their accuracy and their permissioning history. Um, it feels to me like um, private marketplaces and programmatic guarantees should be one of the winners when these changes take place to third party cookies. For me, two questions to you, Sam, is one, does this not now um, cause another challenge for marketers in that, um, you know, I mean, we, we have to ask the question uh, around quality versus quantity, so value versus volume, and that um, it comes at a premium price as well. So obviously your audience is getting smaller, but you're paying a higher premium rate um, hopefully you're getting a higher success rate in terms of ROI. I really like your phrase there of value versus volume. Um, yeah, I, I think in, in digital advertising generally, ch chasing low CPMs is a very, very dangerous strategy because it, the lower the CPMs that you chase, the, the more you're exposed to risks around fraud, viewability, brand safety, spend leakage, and indeed um, you know, inappropriately permissioned data. So um, I would absolutely agree. I think your overall ROI is likely to be stronger by focusing in on, on value rather than volume. Um, and of course, you, you should set an effectiveness measurement strategy in place that enables you to, to check that. Yes, so my other question was, I mean, we mentioned these big publishers that have already started to build their data pools. Um, so they'll be ready for this change in terms of offering those um, PMP deals and all of that. But what about those publishers? Not many have the luxury of setting up for this. What about those smaller publishers? What's going to happen to them? Yeah, so it's a really interesting challenge that because um, a small publisher that is producing you know niche premium content clearly needs a route to monetize that content um i suspect that the future will be for a niche publisher with genuinely pr interesting well curated premium content i suspect ultimately will end up switching to a strategy of of um, the consumer pays because i think it will become harder for those niche quality premium publishers to generate sufficient revenue on the open marketplace. So I think if you're a small publisher with great content, you should think about your paid consumer strategy. And then advertising should be uh, um, like a nice to have 
layer on top, it, it shouldn't be your primary monetization strategy, I don't think, because it will be it will be very hard for you in the future, I suspect. I think it's going to be extremely difficult, especially when we are being bombarded with a sea of content every single day of different platforms. It's going to be uh, difficult for them to to keep up unless they have, uh, you know, th- they really think about their subscriber base and the need for that content. Like you said, if it's niche content, then people are willing to pay for it. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's certainly my view. Yeah. So I just want to maybe touch on that, the programmatic study that you mentioned. I think it's really, it's valuable insights. Do you want to share some of those results from it? Because it would be key for our local market to listen to what you picked up from that study. Yes, very happy to. So this was a study that was commissioned um, at the start of 2019. Um, and it was it was almost 18 months in the making. It, it, it wasn't published until May 2020. Um, and uh, and the study grew out of a much smaller piece of work that a well-known UK publisher did where they set themselves up to anonymously buy their own ad inventory, identified that money was disappearing on routes, um, exercised their right of audit of one of their tech partners. And it was our team that went in and... Um, uh, and unpicked that and you know it, it settled out of court but there was a substantial settlement in favor of the publisher um and and that was the publisher then went to the uk publisher trade body and advertiser trade body and, and said look we we've done this in isolation you know couldn't you try and do this at scale across the industry uh, and that was that was what we, we then did in partnership with with them so we had 15 advertisers Big, well-known advertisers, the likes of Unilever, Nestle, PepsiCo, Glaxo, Shell. So, you know, um, big advertisers and 12 premium publishers, um, well-known in a UK context. So people like The Times, The Sun, The Guardian, Daily Mail uh, and magazines as well. It took incredibly, by June 2019, we had the advertisers, the agencies and the publishers all signed up and ready, wanting to share the data for the study. It, it, it took nine months to actually get that data from the tech vendors um, for, for various reasons. Um, and then once we had the data, the quality of the data is really mixed. There's, there's an, across the industry, there's no standard definitions or taxonomies. Um, every tech vendor has different data retention policies in terms of what they keep and how long they keep it for. Um, like to give one really small example, we had at least half a dozen different date formats in the data and so it, it took it's you know it was a challenging task to unpick all of these data access and data quality issues once we'd done that though we did succeed in matching 31 million impressions all the way from advertiser through agency through dsp ssp to publisher as i mentioned earlier um there were some interesting findings in terms of the the waterfall of where the money flows so on average, 51% of the advertiser spend reached the publishers um, and an average of 15% disappeared into the, the unknown delta. Um, worth mentioning that we saw unknown deltas in all possible DSP, SSP combinations. So the unknown delta did not appear to be being driven by you know, a single bad actor. It appeared to be a more of a systemic issue 
which probably flows from the from the data quality challenges. Just to, you know, to expand on on that, um, everything that our team has seen in all our work in programmatic, and I should have mentioned our, our so our team combined three sets of skills. We had qualified auditors like me. We had people who used to work in programmatic and ad tech um, for up to ten years before joining our team, um, and we had our our media data scientists. And everything that all of us have seen have suggested that programmatic supply chains are not Machiavellian. They're just messy because programmatic has been really successful for good reasons. It's grown really quickly and the governance is catching up. Um, and ultimately, the route to unpick some of these challenges will be improve the data access, improve the data quality. Then you can drill into that 15 percent delta and reduce it for the benefit of advertisers and, and publishers. Um, one other thought on the study, which didn't receive as much press coverage, but which was really interesting, was the volume of spend on third party data. So um, some of our advertisers were spending nothing on third party data, but some were spending up to a full quarter of their programmatic budget on third party data from the likes of Experian, Axiom, Lotomy, and so on. Um, that's third party data will inevitably be curtailed from the end of this year because of the absence of third party cookies and everything we've just been talking about. So, so if I think about that chart in particular, we know that that will look really different if we were to repeat the study at some point in 2022. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting insights because one of the, the things I always talk about is this black box. So, um, there's two things that really pop out for me is transparency and like you rightly put it, it's around quality. So I think what this does in terms of the removal of third party cookies, it kind of forces us to start re-looking um, at what this landscape is going to look like in terms of transparency being key, data privacy, the quality of media that people are investing in because I don't think they really ask the right questions of the investment and where does this money go in terms of the supply value chain. Um, so so there's a lot of work that I think you guys have unpacked by just doing the study, which is really useful for any brand globally. Um, and secondly, it starts to position our brands going to mitigate some of these risks and challenges in the future. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Hey, I, I, I absolutely agreed. Um, our study was um, was a start point rather than an end point. Um, the, the level of interest in it was um, way beyond what we'd anticipated. So, so over the course of 2020, we published in May. Um, we ended up presenting the study 90 something times. Um, and, and we think in the course of that, we, we touched about somewhere between 200 to 250 different companies. Um, and, uh, and the study has won three industry awards and, uh, it is shortlisted for, a, for more in this spring. So I think the level of interest in the, you know, the black box, as you've called it, it is really there. Um, and hopefully our study plus the end of third party cookies will um, prompt a, a rethink about how best to execute programmatic. Um, you know, I should emphasize our, our team is pro programmatic. You know, we, the ability to target is, is a good thing. Um, we just want to see programmatic being done really well. 
Yeah, I agree. So in terms of what advice would you give to marketers in terms of preparation for the next 12 to 18 months? Um, I would say three things. The first thing I would say is don't delay. So take action now. Um, and, and the first action is to understand your as-is state. You know, how reliant are you on third-party cookies and how strong is the data that you hold and how strong is your marketing and ad technology and ad tech. So first, don't delay, understand where you are today. Second, draw up a, a roadmap of the changes you're going to want to make. Keep that roadmap agile. So I think test and learn, test and learn would be key for the course of 2021. Um, and third, um, don't forget about the downsides of targeted marketing. So targeted marketing is a fantastic part of any marketer's um, uh, options. But there is a danger with targeted marketing, which is that you end up over targeting existing customers, and you're not prospecting for new ones. So as you're thinking about targeted marketing and how you deliver tailored messages, also remember that broad based brand building marketing is also really important. Thanks, Sam. Um, and I think my final question to you is what keeps you awake at night? Oh. <laughs> um, do you know, I think probably not uh, tailored marketing at the moment. The thing that keeps me awake at, at night is hoping that soon, certainly in, in the UK context, hoping that soon lockdown will be over and I will no longer be homeschooling my children and that we can all uh, get back out and, uh, and be safely enjoying life to the full once again i think yeah we all can relate to that and completely agree with that sentiment sam thank you so much for your time uh we really appreciate it it's so valuable um how can people get in contact with you on linkedin uh, if you just uh, search for sam tomlinson pwc you'll be able to find me okay perfect thank you so much sam have a great day further thank you thank you very nice talking to you okay bye 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 we're excited. You're excited. I really value and appreciate your support during this time. Helping decision makers navigate the change and keep some change in their pockets. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow our Instagram handle at TalkDigitalZA. Engage us on our website at TalkDigitalZA.co.za. And who knows, you could be featuring on the next one.